Welcome to EdTech Examined, a series about educational technology and what you need to know. I'm Eric Christensen. And I'm Chris Hans. Welcome to another episode of EdTech Examined. Good afternoon, Chris, on this lovely, sunny Saturday afternoon. How are you doing? How is life at the university? Living the dream. <laughs> We're always living the dream, eh? I had a good colleague of mine who worked for the government for a long time. Really, really nice guy. He said, uh, living the dream, Eric. It's not my dream. It's the minister's dream. <laughs> I always thought that was funny. That being said, uh, being academics and working at the universities, uh, we're pretty autonomous. So in some ways we are living the dream because uh, we get the flexibility, including doing awesome podcasts like this. So should we jump into our ed tech office hours? For sure. It seems like it's a pretty packed one. It is a packed one. Um, I do want to, so I didn't talk to you about this beforehand. I made an executive decision, so I apologize. And we're going to try this out uh, to see how it goes. Maybe we'll switch it back. In the past, we've had EdTech office hours, which are questions from folks. And then we've had our tips at the end of the episode. I thought maybe we could use EdTech office hours to combine our follow-up tips, particularly if they relate to a previous episode, which one of them does, as well as include questions from listeners that they've submitted into one section. I don't know if that makes it too packed. Um, I just thought we would try that this time. Just to see. Uh, the reason being is that some of the feedback was is that people really like the questions we answer and the tips we provide, and they not as interested in the news, so they tend to fluctuate. And they said, "Could it be in one section?" So I just made EdTech Office Hours our brand for all tips and questions answered for the time being. But we can maybe maybe we'll switch it back, or I don't know. Well, I guess it doesn't matter. We have chapter markers, so it doesn't matter. But yeah, um, I did. If you don't mind, I did want to kick it off with a with an update. Um, so in our last episode, I, uh, that was episode 34, Zettelkasten, I, I discussed the note-taking method that I was attempting. That was my secret summer project. For that, I was using a note system called Notion, which I think is a great system. I'm not disparaging the Notes app. I, I was telling you how I had chosen to use that. Um, and I was also looking at some alternatives. And I said, I may not stick with Notion. I did say I was, had not decided. And I found a deal breaker for me. It has to be connected to the internet. Otherwise, it doesn't work. Oh, wow. So it's really a desktop and mobile app that's basically a wrapper for a web, the web app. And that's no good. I also did not like the export options. Um, so one of the things I look for in applications is that you want to be able to save your files in a format to where if the, the application dies, you can presumably, especially if you've added hundreds or thousands of notes, you could open it with something else. You don't want it to be locked yeah. behind. So I moved to the uh, notes app called Obsidian, which is a free open source app, uh, multi, multi-platform, Windows, Mac, iOS, maybe Android. Um, you write your notes in Markdown, which is a super easy text editing, like a billion times easier HTML, though they, they say that a WYSIWYG editor is coming, so you don't have to use that. Saves all the notes as .txt files, which are mar- or Markdown files. Um, and it's also a lot easier to sync. Uh, they have a setup. They actually have a service where you can encrypt your notes and pay. That's how they make money. The app is free, but if you want to use their syncing and collaboration stuff, then you have to pay for their syncing service. But even using the free app, you can just 
sync it to iCloud or Dropbox or Google Drive or OneDrive. You just have to have the client on your computer installed. So you, you're always saving to like a folder that's building a structure. So as long as that folder is being saved to uh, a cloud backup service, you presumably can open and every app on every device is pointing to that folder. You should be able to open it. So it's a little bit more flexible. I also really liked Chris. Remember I showed you, um, we do an audio podcast, but you can do this kind of like web, this mind map. I think that's super awesome. And I found that to be incredibly useful. It's just a little bit simpler to use. It's just Notion is a great tool. It's so complicated. It's also kind of a project management tool. It has so many things that I'm not going to use in it that I just gave up. So now my system is that I use for reading and research stuff. Everything is in uh, Obsidian so I can connect my ideas together. And then for all my other notes that are not really related to that, they're not notes I've taken on literature or things that I've read. I still use Apple notes for, you know, my to-do lists and organizations, you know, other podcast. Um, a bunch of stuff like that. So I, I'm still working with different apps for different reasons, but I just, yeah. And maybe if Apple notes continues to grow, then I'll use the tagging system yeah. and replace it. But so far I'm pretty happy with uh, obsidian. I, I like that. It's not proprietary and it saves it as text files. Yeah, no, that, uh, again, when we were reviewing it, I mean, uh, just from a optic standpoint, I thought that one, just look the best from a, especially given that it could put it into that uh, mind map type of format. So uh, yeah, good to know. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think it's good that everybody realizes because they yeah, had notion. I mean, even I saw something on Twitter today, uh, a colleague of mine who actually retweeted something and I, it was kind of interesting. There's people that are developing templates for notion and then they're charging money for those templates. So <laughs> Yeah, you can yeah. buy them. I made my own templates. I tried to make my own and it's just, it's a super cool app. I think it would, could be a base camp replacement too. Like it does everything. It's more than notes, yeah. right? Like it's a good app. It's a great company. I think they'd have a cool, but if you just want to take notes and you want to be able to export them and, you know, um, we have that Scrivener app, which I use for writing things. And it's like, you know, they, I did the, the ability to cut and paste a markdown file into Scrivener and just have it import the proper formatting is so much better than exporting to PDF. So um, yeah, I just wanted to do a quick update on that. Uh, Our next section is kind of some tech tips slash news in in EdTech office hours. Uh, I had some questions after our last episode, if we were gonna cover more maker stuff, a colleague of mine at the university asked that from Chris and I for the makers out there are, if you're interested in computing and maker technology, there's a really exciting development, which is that Raspberry Pi company, which is a not-for-profit. They're famous for selling those credit card sides, computer boards. I have a Raspberry Pi second generation uh, hooked up to my 4K television and I used it. I built my own set-top box with it, with a hard drive connected to it for all my media and my music collection. It also functions as a network attached storage. Um, that's a, that's a super cool project. They just came out with the Raspberry Pi zero two W. So the Raspberry Pi zero was a $5 computer board that came out five or six years ago. It was super low power. So it was really made for like internet of things. So if you wanted to set up like a streaming security camera in your backyard and it didn't do have to do anything, but one thing, it was really good. It wasn't 
uh, as good a desktop replacement as the other Raspberry Pi. Mm -hmm. So the Raspberry Pis, for those people not familiar, though the maker people out there will know this, um, they're starting, I think, Chris, probably with the Raspberry Pi 3 and now with the 4, they have like, like the 4, you can get up to 8 gigabytes of RAM, like a quad or six core processor. Like you can... Yeah run it as a desktop computer running Ubuntu and it like, it's not the fastest, but it will, you know, you, I wouldn't do video conferencing on it, but it can do everything else and you can open office and everything that you need to do. And the, the so the Pi zero uh, is a much more cut down. So it's still not really good for that, um, but it does have some specs updates. So it's a Broadcom system on a chip. It's a one gigahertz quad core 64 bit Cortex A53 ARM processor. For anybody who knows ARM processors, it's actually pretty good. The price has been bumped up to a whopping $15. Has 512 megabytes of RAM. It comes with Bluetooth and Bluetooth 4.0 and Wi Fi on board. It has five times the performance of the previous. Um, so it wouldn't be a very good desktop replacement, but it's a really cool project. Like if you wanted to do like a network detached storage. So if you just want to have like a, a bunch of hard drives hooked up to your, uh, local network with a computer on board that ran them, ran them. I, I've done this in the past with the original Raspberry Pi. There's a piece of software called open media vault. And you can install that as an operating system on the Pi, plug it into a bunch of drives, connect it to your local network. And then from your Mac or Windows computer, you can see like this storage that you can drag and drop files to. So you can have like automated backups for time machine. There's all sorts of stuff you can do. It's also really cool. Now it has all these graphics and enhancements. So I know people who've built emulation studios for 60, 16 and 8-bit game consoles. So you make like the Raspberry Pi is like the best Super Nintendo of all time. Uh, it's pretty amazing actually. So um, pretty cool. It was interesting to me that CNET uh, interviewed or talked to Eben Upton, who was uh, one of the co-founders, and he said, "All of the product of all the products we've launched, Zero is still the one I'm proudest of. It most perfectly embodies our mission to give people access to tools and to eliminate the uh, the cost as a barrier because it's a fifteen dollar computer board." Anyways, I thought that was pretty yeah, cool. No, for sure, that's my maker tip. Well, and I mean, again, it's, uh, it's one of those things that I think people, uh, especially if you're looking at doing some prototyping and so on, and, uh, you know, cost might be an issue, and especially in the educational standpoint, um, you know, point of view, it's just, it brings down the cost so that uh, you can actually go and run it with a bunch of your students and work on some cool, interesting projects. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm. I've been debating, do I want this? But I've also always wanted the Raspberry Pi 4. Um, my goal, my project has been that I, uh, for our listeners, I, I purchased from you, Chris, a bunch of old computers, including a Mac Pro cheese grater case. And my goal is to, which I've emptied it, I've cleaned it all up and prepped cool. it. And I want to buy a new Raspberry Pi and put it inside that case. And that humongous case is going to have a teeny tiny Raspberry Pi with a bunch of drives attached to it to function as a desktop slash network attached storage. Yeah. It's the most badass NAS of all time. <laughs> well, and I mean, even the, so, even I don't the know four that... is pretty inexpensive too, it looks like. Yeah, I think you can buy the four with, uh, it adds up because you, I wanted the eight gigabytes as it, so it functions as a desktop plus a NAS. And then 
Um, you have to get like a mini HDMI to HDMI cable because it uses all these mini ports and you have to get like a power supply. So I think like if you were to buy all the stuff, you're probably in it for like 150 bucks. Which still isn't bad, right? For a desktop computer. Yeah, yeah exactly. And then you can put it in that uh, Apple case, which I mean, it, it probably is one of the best looking from an industrial design perspective. Uh, personally, what I was going to use it for, I had two of them. And we were going to make it into a table. <laughs> so That's pretty awesome. Just put some glass on top. That was our idea. And uh, I mean, you might even still with that other little iMac that I gave you, that was our idea too. In the office was uh, just put a piece of glass on top and it can be like a little side table. So that has actually that iMac that you gave me has Linux installed on it, but I can't get in because I don't know the password. Yeah, that was the issue. So I don't know how to wipe it. I have to wipe it so I can install it. Something. We're going to need some hacking abilities here. <laughs> yeah. That, that, I have, I, I'm going to, yeah, I have a plan yeah. for that. The backup plan is that if I can't get it to work, I'll take the guts out of it and turn it into a lamp. Yeah, there you go. So, but I, I, and the Voodoo computer turns on and it works. Oh, does it? Oh, yeah. Oh. Does it have a password behind it? Maybe. I'm not sure. Just wipe all my like. I'll tell you if there's yeah, any data. Wipe all my secret files off of it. <laughs> oh, I'm not gonna. Yeah, I will give them back to you. I'm not gonna take uh, anything. Uh, I like computing projects. I think the Pi is super cool. Uh, anybody interested in, like, I have a bunch of movies that I've purchased. Uh, a lot of DRM documentary, DRM free, so digital rights management, copyright free documentaries. I purchased a lot of media legitimately purchased it and it not through a store that's proprietary. And I always wanted a better way to play that stuff onto my television. And this is years ago, starting in like 2014. And there really wasn't a very good set top box that you could buy that would play all of these formats uh, that, that weren't from like a Apple store. Like it, they were so limiting, but with the raspberry Pi, it, because it's basically a Linux computer and it uses, it has every codec. I, I built my own set-top box with it. Raspberry Pi 2 has been running as my set-top box for like six, seven years. Mm -hmm. So it's been sitting there. It's never been turned off. Occasionally I have to reboot it because it freezes up. But like I haven't rebooted it for like two years. It's pretty good. Unless it's been an update. It just sits there. It's connected to a big, huge hard drive. Did you want to take our uh, our listener question? Yeah, sure. Kicked off? Yeah. Yeah, so the next question that we have was uh, out of the new Android phones or the iPhones, which one would you recommend? And um, some of the, our recommendations, I guess, uh, on the Apple side. So with the iPhone, uh, you know, now that they've uh, released number 13, uh, obviously you have uh, the, the choice between the 12, the 13. I mean, you could probably even get some of their older ones or Maybe there might even be their um, their smaller ones that they have with the SE or now I believe it's the mini. Mm -hmm. But uh, I I mean, as you know, I, I personally did upgrade my phone. Uh, I had the 11 Pro 256 and now I'm at the 13 Pro. And uh, I mean, from the 11 to the 13, there, even then it wasn't that much of a difference, but I do like the design of the uh, it's basically the similar design to the 12 and the 13, but box here, isn't it? Yeah. It's kind of like similar to like the iPad pro that we have. Um, so just kind of like, I don't know. It feels like with the rounded edges, it's maybe not as, I don't even know what the best word would be. Maybe not as slippery. 
super 70s the whole rounded look like the watch and stuff the 70s rounded gold i always got a, the impression that apple really leaned into like the 70s era yeah. curvatures i like the boxy design it feels easier to hold yeah, on to. yeah exactly so but yeah i mean uh, in terms of between the 12 and the 13 there's probably not much of a difference other than the battery uh, lasts longer. There's uh, obviously the camera. Uh, they've actually now the the 13. It has a it's a bit of a protruding camera uh, on the Pro, anyways, and so you have to actually have a case that kind of bumps out. Um, so I mean, here I'll show Eric my little. You see how there's a little bit of a it looks jet, good. jets out. I got the blue one because I just wanted to be unique. So there's the. Oh, Kind of cutting out. Yeah. I like it. And um, honestly, I sometimes even think like maybe even like the mini might be good for some people, um, you know, according to the the Mac world. And especially from a size perspective, the mini, you know, battery life is pretty comparable. It, it's that much smaller. Um, the other option might be to go and get like a refurb or maybe get a deal on the 12 versus the 13. I mean, obviously, Apple wants to go and push yeah. their latest products. It's interesting with the iPhones because the 13 to the 12 didn't have much of a performance enhancement. Typically, we've seen these huge performance jumps because Apple's like a silicon company now. But the performance jump from the 12 to the 13 was like 10%. It was super low. So they used all of the power of that chip for optimization to increase battery life. So I think if you go from the regular 12 or the 12 Pro to the 13 or 13 Pro, you see not only a better camera, but a considerable increase in battery life. Our question came from someone who currently has not the current SE, but the previous generation, which is pretty yeah. old. So he was interested in the mini. And my understanding with the mini 12 was that it was a great phone, but the battery life wasn't amazing because it's smaller. So I suspected maybe the 13 is a better way to go. But According to Macworld, the battery life they felt was pretty comparable, even though on paper it's supposed to be better. So if you're not a huge phone user, I sometimes wonder about these reviews where they're like, oh, the battery's not great. And I'm like, yeah, but they're testing the battery. You know what I mean? Like, I don't use my phone that much anymore, Chris. Like, I text you, but it sits on this wireless charger at my desk or it's plugged in at work. So I'm like, I kind of tend to charge it, get it down to... 40, 50% and then charge it up to 85%. It kind of stays in that range. I don't typically just charge it overnight. Um, so I think that if you're not like a hardcore phone user, like you just use it for the basic stuff, you're casual, the, the mini is probably fine. Yeah. Again, it. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I just uh, like having the pro. I think it's just, <laughs> that's just kind of my thing or whatever, but realistically, I probably wouldn't have done it if it wasn't that, uh, you know, here I had this promotion where Rogers was letting me go and upgrade early and you know get out of that and stuff and actually i was able to sell my uh it's it's just it's actually pretty astonishing sometimes but you can there's a pretty good retail market like resale market for the older stuff and there is i still have my eight plus people are shocked yeah. that i still use that but it's a great phone and touch id is great because i can't unlock my phone wearing a mask it doesn't work so i don't have an apple watch to do that yeah. so uh, touch id has been fantastic I'm going to keep it till it dies. Yeah, and I guess the other qu person uh, had a question who had like a Samsung, so on the Android side of things. Well, same person, just asking. Oh, was it the same? What about okay. an Android phone? Yeah, and yeah. I guess on the Android side, so, uh, I mean, you probably have seen the ads for it, but, uh, you know, the Pixel 6 has just been released. 
and it's already maybe considered like, you know, uh, from a, a phone camera perspective, it's probably one of the best. They actually uh, included the tensor flow, um, uh, you know, chip on there. So it has some features where you can, you know, if somebody's actually gone in to the shots and, you know, bomb the shot, you can actually remove the person and uh, uh, you have that editing capability, which is kind of cool. Yeah, it seems like a good phone. I like the Pixel phones. I'm not a Android person, not because I think it's a bad system. I'm always concerned about the Google privacy yeah. stuff. Um, I wish there was kind of an open source Android phone that was locked down. I really like what the Pixel does in terms of getting updates because it comes from Google. You get the operating systems for quite a few years. Um, not like the iPhone. You'll never get the updates that an iPhone does, but the Pixel on Android is better than the others. But I think that the Samsung Galaxy... Is that the Galaxy 21 Ultra? Is that the newest one? I believe so, yeah. Um, that one is also pretty good. So that would be a recommendation. I wouldn't recommend buying uh, these kind of mid-tier devices from Samsung because I think you take a really big hit on the camera quality. And not a lot of people are carrying around a dedicated camera anymore. So you're better to invest in a device like the S21 uh, there, you know, where you get a big camera because I think Apple pixel galaxy, you're getting a really good camera regardless. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, and that's the most important thing for a lot of people. I, I've also heard that, and, and this is coming from someone who, who has a smaller phone, but I've heard that, especially if you're not a tablet owner, I've heard that the third generation galaxy fold is really good, but, but I'm not convinced that it won't break over time. I would love to have one to play with. I'd find it fascinating that you can bend it in half and it has like another screen on the outside. I think it's really cool. This is a third generation and the reviews have been pretty good. Both the Z yeah. flip and the Z fold. The Z flip is like a fold, like an old style phone that flips up into a, a smartphone and the Z fold turns from a smartphone to a tablet. Um, kind of cool, but yeah, it's just me. Yeah, no, for sure. But yeah, I mean, it's an interesting point that you bring up though. Like I've seen the, in terms of on the camera side of things, people are not going and getting those dedicated like the SLRs and what have you, because, you know, frankly, the smartphones now have gotten to a point that they might actually be better. Well, they do computational photography. So the hardware will never be as good because there's no way to put a big mirrorless lens in there. But yeah, with computation, you can do a lot of things that SLRs can't. And SLRs can do a lot of things with light that it takes in and the size of the sensor that a phone can't. Um, yeah, interesting. I know, in fact, it's funny you mentioned SLRs because I know a lot of people who are SLR carriers who've not only use a phone for a lot of stuff, and these are professional or semi-pro photographers. Um, but they also say that they've moved down from an SLR to some fixed lens cameras, uh, namely things like the Sony RX100, which is on its like seventh generation, I think, which is an amazing mirrorless camera with a fixed lens. That's really good. So, um, yeah, everything is kind of miniaturizing, right? Yeah, for sure. Now, uh, we have a couple, uh, we have, a, I would say, a crap load of news today. Um, who should start with this? We have a tech news section that's related to education and implications, and then we have some dedicated education and ed tech news. So did you want to start with the sure. pros? Yeah, so as you, some people have maybe seen just recently in October, 
Apple made the announcement of uh, their new MacBook Pros, and it's a significant, uh, huge performance over their old Intel-based uh, MacBook Pros. And so these ones, um, they actually have, they're kind of making it, uh, I would say, complicated for the processors <laughs> anyways, but they have, uh, you know, a new M1 Pro uh, chip as well as an M1 Max Pro processor and so and then they have like a 14 inch and a 16 inch uh you know for i think for most uh, uh, educators or students and what have you they're probably okay with the base uh, configuration and i i believe for these what was it for the max pro they actually come with a 16 gigabyte uh, ram right uh so, yeah so all of the pro laptops outside of the 13 inch start with 16 gigs of ram yeah, so the ones Instead that, yeah, especially these pro ones, but uh, yeah, just take a look. I mean, that's something that we've suggested before is that if you uh, ever come across one where it's like eight, you may want to go and invest into that 16 and it'll give you some longer longevity in, in terms of the device and overall huge performance. I mean, it's actually, uh, it's surprising like how much of a performance uh, every, uh, it's only been a year now that they've released these M1 chips and already uh, they are upping it. And I don't know if Intel is even going to be able to keep uh, pace. Well, certainly not in mobile. I think in desktop, um, that's a bit different. I don't know how. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, we'll have to see how, how it scales up. I, yeah. I think the MacBook Pros are good. I would still say to people, um, like I have an Intel-based 16-inch MacBook Pro. Um, so it's like a couple of years old. It's a great computer. If you have something like that, I wouldn't run out and buy an M1. I don't think yeah. it's worth it. I, I would say unless you are in a program in university or you teach in an area where 3D video render or 3D rendering or video editing or maybe even hardcore Photoshop layers is really important to you where you're doing exports or maybe you have a side gig where you do that, then the update is probably worth it because you're rendering in like, you know, a fifth of the time. But other than that, if your computer is, you know, a MacBook Pro from 2015 onwards, which is, you know, almost seven years now, you're getting Mac OS Monterey, which I've upgraded to on my computer here. Yeah. So I have Mac OS Monterey running. Um, there's still some advantages to running Intel laptops. Like I have Windows installed via bootcamp on my Mac. Uh, I can't do that on M1. And it looks like there's going to be no path to do that at this point. So there are some advantages with having um, an Intel-based system. Intel computers are not slow and rendered useless just because Apple's chips today are faster. I think it really just comes down to support. If you're going to upgrade your computer anyways and you're in the market, you've been holding out, I think go for the M1. Though I would say wait until the entry-level M2 and get a MacBook Air, unless you're doing those high-end tasks. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of funny, Chris. I was thinking about this. I wrote a, I'm going to shamelessly plug my Tech Bytes post, which I think I've linked in our rundown. There's yeah. some really great reviews. I really like Ars Technica's review. I haven't watched The Verge's review yet. I did my own review even though I don't have the computer on my blog, tech-bytes.net, techbytes.net, um, kind of with the question of how does this work for enthusiasts and semi-pros? Professional devices that are made for professionals, how are they for... I'm a, I'm a computer enthusiast. I like to program. I like to do all this stuff. 
but I'm working in a text editor and doing web design and I do audio editing. I'm not doing stuff that's rendering that, you know, the time is actually holding my clients up. You know what I mean? Like I'm not, yeah. I'm not, I'm an enthusiast. So the question is, is that what can you get away with now with these Apple Silicon Macs as an, as an enthusiast? Yeah. And I think you, you know, one thing I'll say is that you did do a really great job in your blog post, just kind of summarizing. I mean, the the one thing that I, I think is, uh, you know, I'll say that I didn't mention earlier, but um, the design itself, and this is what maybe might appeal to a lot of people for the, the MacBooks is they've actually reintroduced, you don't have to have these dongles for everything. And so it's actually yeah. a little bit thicker. It's uh, it's kind of reminiscent, and that's why like I I like how you mentioned this in your blog post, but it's it's almost like the 2008 or maybe even like like I have a 2013, uh, you know, when they released the Retina, and you actually have the HDMI cable, you got the, you know, these uh, ports and stuff. I mean, although it would have been kind of nice, I like how you mentioned maybe they should actually have some of the ports on the backside. I I think so. I think. So I, I think a couple of things like it's, it's very much reminds me of that almost even almost the pre retina with the CD drive MacBook pros yeah, like from 2011, because yeah. it's so boxy, but even those are have like the, the MacBook designs have had that kind of rounded clam, not a clamshell that rounded, like those old plastic ones, but it, like it has a kind of a soft rounded look and we're kind of Apple's moving everything to the squared off look like your phone. So it kind of yeah. reminds me almost like the PowerBook titanium, which is probably, you know, was introduced before a lot of our listeners were even born. Uh, but I remember that. And I remember that those used to go for upwards of like $8,000 back in the day, if you max them out. So today's computers are much more affordable by comparison, but I, I'm appreciate that you uh, took a look at it. I, I guess the thing that I think about Chris is that, you know, what do people really need? And I think like when people buy a computer and I'm thinking of students, I'm thinking of faculty, maybe they have PD funds or in a university, what is it that they really need? And I think that they want is that they want good power, but they also want to get a lot of life out of their computer. And I think the problem is, is that for a while now, Apple's pros weren't really very good for pros. They had bad thermal designs. They were throttling. They didn't do well under long load. So people almost had to spend pro, like go to a pro level computer to get semi-pro performance. And it used to be that the MacBook Air, before it was Retina screen and stuff, you could max out the, the MacBook Air with like 16 gigs of RAM and a lot of hard drive space and hook it up to a monitor. And that was like almost a pro machine because it had a fan that would kick on and it was with a first solid state drive. And so now I'm looking at the performance of these M1 Macs, like the entry levels, those already rival my MacBook Pro or getting close to it. I don't, I think my MacBook Pro still does a lot better performance and multi-threaded and stuff like that than those entry level M1s. But these new pros are way beyond mine. But, you know, if I was to buy a computer tomorrow, the enthusiast being that I am, even though we're doing a podcast or I'm recording, would I, for myself, purchase a pro? I'm not sure that I would or would recommend it to people who aren't actual pros anymore. Like the 13-inch pro is kind of a prosumer laptop. A maxed out MacBook Air may be good enough for a Mac mini. Like I think there's probably some merit to Apple's pro stuff has really moved up in terms of pro 
usage and they're designed for that audience. But I think from enthusiasts and semi-pros or people who aspire to be, I think you could probably save a lot of money by adding more RAM and hard drive space to a, an Air or the 13-inch MacBook Pro. Their, their line is a bit of a mess right now. And you probably get all the performance that you could ever throw at it personally. That's my opinion. Well, and I, I speaking from my personal experience, even, uh, you know, here I am, I got, uh, we actually got two retina displays. And I think I've talked about this when they first introduced the retina display and, you know, uh, right before the warranty kind of ran out on it and I had the Apple care plus, uh, and actually it did run out. And, uh, fortunately, you know, Apple still honored it, but there was a known defect where literally the pixels on the screen were kind of getting messed up. And mm -hmm. uh, like I, if you looked at my uh, partner, my business partner's uh, laptop, it looked like Wolverine had literally like scratched the screen, and mine was starting to fade. The coding or the pixels? The the pixels themselves, like oh, the yeah. actual, yeah, it would be the coding, like the actual, you know, the the physical uh, screen was actually getting messed up. And at that time, so like I mean, I'm still running that same laptop, and so they replaced that which basically they had to go and replace the whole top part. At the same time, I replaced my battery. And just so people know, when you replace the battery, you also get the keyboard replaced. And so anyway, so that's uh, that's what happened. And so I'm still running mine. And the only reason why I'm running it is because I have like the HDMI cable and all that. And especially in, uh, if you look at it for here, I'm teaching at Mount Royal and at UFC, all we have is HDMI out, right? Or that's input. every boardroom ever. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I, I don't know if I would want to carry around a dongle. And by the way, I think what I would still do, I think my recommendation, and I believe that's what you're mentioning too in your blog post, but I think we probably would recommend maybe people hold off if they can, because chances are, like even you mentioned that part about the notch and how you- Oh, I hate the notch. It. Yeah. Well, so are the phones have a notch, the iPhone- because it has face ID. The iPad has face ID now, except the entry level model. And it has enough of a border, a bezel that it doesn't have the notch, but the MacBook Pro has a notch, but it doesn't have any face unlock. So all they've done is expand the borders, but then they had to put the webcam somewhere. So then they just, you could think about it in terms of its bonus space that they would have otherwise just put a line across. But my 16-inch MacBook Pro, the 2019 model, by the way, which is a fantastic computer, and if you could get a super deal on a refurb or used or something, I would recommend it because it's a really great device. I've been absolutely super happy with it. It's fine. Like, there's no need to have a thinner bezel. Like, it looks great. Like, it's just like my, I have a Dell laptop from work, uh, like an XPS, but a Latitude, and it has super thin bezels. And it's very similar to this. Like, there's no need to have... 0.2 inches extra. So I have a notch on there because it, it actually runs into the menu bar. I have so many things running in my menu bar that it would for sure screw it up. And I've seen now pictures of users where the menu bar, it's like running and that's like being cut off by like the notch. It's just, it's gross. It's super yeah. gr like, did it, do we need this? Is it necessary? Yeah, no, for sure. I it mean, has the only yeah, and then the yeah, I guess the they've reintroduced the MagSafe as well, and uh, I I don't know. I mean, the only the only reason I probably would get it uh, is because um, you know they only have the 14 and 16 inch in those Mac Pro 
uh, yeah. you know, like these latest ones. Right. And so it's, um, I don't know, they're going to have to figure out like their whole product line, but uh, yeah, again, I guess the, the advice, if you have a chance, maybe hold off for like a, another year, don't be the Guinea pig to let them work out all their kinks. Yeah. Like if you have a good computer entry level M series processor, so it'll be M2. So we have M1 and then there's M1 pro for the base level pros and M1 max for that upper, you know, the revved up MacBook pros, the entry level is like still some of the fastest computers on the market by any measure. So if you wait for the entry level, the M1 to become M2 and you, you know, if they keep that 13 inch MacBook pro around, or maybe they come out with a 14 inch that runs, you know, the more entry level, or they bump, they bump up the screen size of their entry level computers to 14 inch and include the notch and just make them the same design language. They may do that. Um, there's no need to have a pro computer. Like if I was to buy the pro today, Chris, I would probably purchase the 14 inch or 16 inch base model. And I would maybe update the Ram because I can from 16 gigs to 32, just to give it more lifespan. Cause I've been running, this is now the second computer I've had with 16 gigs of Ram over the course of a decade. So or increase the hard drive space, but that's it. I do not need the Macs processor. There's nothing I do. You know, my Emacs editor is not going to load any faster because of that. Like my text editing program that I write in HTML is not going to make a difference. (laughs) Probably load on a MacBook or a Mac mini, right? Like, so I think if you do need a pro, go with the base model. I think even the 16 gigs of RAM base model with 512 SSD, uh, eight core CPU, 14 core GPU, 16 gigs of RAM, base model 14 inches, 2,300 bucks. I would, and then you have to add a warranty if you want that, or that's with education pricing in Canada. I think that's fine. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I'm crazy, but I feel like their pros are so good that we don't have to pay extra for increases anymore. So that's good. Yeah, for sure. Um, interesting thing I came across from Wired Magazine Uh, I am a subscriber to Wired Magazine. Print, print magazines come to my door. Um, This was not in their print edition, but I saw it on the app. So there's a big interest these days in retro computers. So we were just talking about, you had some retro computers I bought from you, the cases, the things that work. And uh, so Wired had an article that said, retro collectors are uncovering hordes of old data. And I thought this was interesting just for uh, implications for university IT administrators or maybe students or faculty who have an old computer and they're, you know, junking it or giving it to somebody. So I want to read you a quote from this article. It says, much like baking and crocheting, (laughs) interest in retro computing soared during the pandemic, which, by the way, makes sense because the prices have gone up on a lot of these computers. As the tedium of lockdown forced people to channel their frustrations into creative pursuits, sales of vintage machines proliferated during the period, and many of these collectors have unexpectedly amassed vast troves of sensitive personal and information. Uh, This presents a challenge, not just for the corporations affected, but for those forced to determine what to do with John Bumstead the owner of a Minnesota-based computer restoration shop, RDKL Incorporated, is no newcomer to the scene. 
For over a decade, he has earned a living from buying, repairing, and eventually reselling broken Apple laptops. It's impossible to determine how many vintage machines are sold each year with their historical files and applications intact, although conversations with members of the retro commuting community suggest the scenario is common enough. Max Levy, a medical student based in Brigham, UK, or Birmingham, UK, reported acquiring an Apple iBook G3 clamshell that unseemingly belonged to an employee of the British Medical Association. The laptop was from circa 2000, so 21 years ago, and contained documents of ex, uh, executive decisions and minutes on relevant at the time to world issues like HIV and AIDS. As a medical student, this was quite a find and the documents represented quite significant decisions. This was exciting to see who was attending board meetings in the early 2000s, he says. But it makes me think about, do people get rid of these computers, maybe students or faculty, and they don't know what they left on it? Yeah, I mean, I'd, this is something that I would hope that people basically just wipe the drives or whatever. I mean, uh, I guess worse comes to worse if you're doing like sensitive stuff, uh, maybe do what they do in the movies and put them in the microwave. <laughs> oh, but then you wreck everything. Yeah, I mean, it's true. But there's got to be a way. And one of the things that was interesting in that article, they said that um solid state for some reason and i have to look into why i guess it's harder to completely wipe than a traditional spinning disk drive so and because now these at the mac computers are like soldered on right yeah so they're harder and harder to completely wipe so if you i guess i don't know why i put this in other than that if you are a student if you are a professor who's had research data and you want to sell your old computer Please, there are uh, lots of computer companies that will do like forensic wipes. Uh, there's lots of guides online of how to do a proper factory reset of a Mac device, which will reset everything. Um, make sure to do that because they're finding these computers with like really sensitive old data on it. Yeah, and that definitely could open you up to who knows what type of liability issues as well. Um, did you want to talk about Elon Musk very briefly? Well, it was just kind of, uh, I don't know if he's serious or, and, uh, you know, maybe he's it's hard just, to tell uh, it's, you never know with him, but he tweeted uh, yesterday, uh, I'm thinking of starting a new university, Texas Institute of Technology and Science. So would you go to this place? Well, I mean, I, I'm trying to, uh, so you sent me his tweet and then I, well, I actually saw it very briefly, but I didn't really read it last night. I think. And then you sent it to me and I was like, oh, like that's what that was about. I I thought maybe he was referring to an existing school. I'm trying to think of a reason why you wouldn't if you're interested in a technical institute. I mean, Caltech, I don't, is Caltech publicly funded or is it private? I'm not sure. We should look this up actually. I'm going to look this up right now. Um, yeah. But I mean, if it's a private institution, there's lots of private universities. I mean, Harvard is private. All the Ivy League schools are private. I mean, some of the best ranked schools in the world are private. Um, yeah, California Institute of Technology, Caltech is a private research university in Pasadena, California, according to Wikipedia. So if he did cede the money, just like, you know, uh, Carnegie did with the library systems that he built all over the world, then I seen if it's a good school and it attracts good people and they train people with really good skills, I see no reason why it would be bad. Yeah. And I, I guess the main thing that I, this is why I don't know if it's just a complete mind F, 
But uh, if you look up the acronym for this institution, <laughs> I don't know if, uh, if you'd want to go to this place. He's a kind of a wild and crazy guy to say uh, a Steve Martin, but he also, you know, took Tesla to new heights and started SpaceX and is doing this like underground tunneling company. I mean, the guy's doing interesting stuff. I can't really, he's getting stuff done. Yeah, yeah for SpaceX sure. invented reusable rockets. How hard can it be to set up a university compared to that? <laughs> I mean, really? Um, anyways, uh, next story, uh, Reuters. Uh, Udemy files for US IPO, uh, initial public offering. So the company had a quote unquote record year. So the San Francisco based company's revenue grew 55.6% to $429.9 million in 2020 from the earlier year its filing showed. So a lot of increase in online learning since the pandemic and lockdowns, kind of what you and I have talked about, more online learning, more private competition. Udemy incurred a net loss of 77.6 million over the same period. So I guess it's still not profitable, um, but it's getting close to breaking even. So that's something. And I guess Coursera and Nerdy, which I hadn't heard of before, um, also went public earlier this year. So I guess it's following the trend of these online learning companies or course companies are um, going private or, go, or going public. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Did you want to take on the next one? Well, it's, it's all the, the big news these days. Uh, so Facebook has changed its corporate name to Meta. And this just happened yesterday. We're shooting on the, over the weekend or recording this over the weekend. And uh, I, I, I was commenting to you earlier. I mean, if, uh, if Zuckerberg, if Mark Zuckerberg actually wanted to go complete Meta, what I would have done, I think it's a huge, uh, you know, opportunity that he missed out on for, um, uh, going completely meta. If I if I was in his shoes, I would have gotten Jesse Eisenberg from the Social Network movie to go in and <laughs> announce the whole thing. Uh, but uh, anyways, I, I guess I, with this uh, whole change, um, you know, there's a, there's this new sweeping vision of creating next generation embodied internet inspired by science fiction, where users, as he describes, will be in the experience not just looking at it and he's also targeting education as part of that vision yeah it's interesting because a lot of the news that i read has been about how he's creating another second life which was an ancient online massively multiplayer social platform that people got bored of like immediately um but i guess he is partnering um announced that we partner with Coursera and edX to help push the Meta's curriculum. I'm quoting from Ed Surge, the blog, uh, in augmented and virtual reality, which he calls Spark AR curriculum. So a spokesperson for edX, uh, which stated, started as a not-for-profit by Harvard and MIT, but is in the process of being sold to for-profit TU, said the, the group would share more information about the partnerships in the coming weeks. So I mean, they own Oculus, Facebook owns Oculus, their VR platform, which is very, very good. And John Carmack, the famous game designer works for them. And so I can see why they would start an educational arm to develop in VR since they own a VR company, just like Apple releases all these courses and coding camps for coding in Swift 
which is the language for coding on Mac and iPad and iPhone. Like they're trying to yeah. feed into it. The, the thing that I found really funny and uh, using um, a millennial Twitter language, I'm going to say uh, not a good look, not a good look is the quote from this article which is that the uh, the author of the article says metaverse is an interesting name given that it was originally coined in a dystopian novel called snow crash and in this novel an action which is an action adventure adventure set in a world where much of everyday life is lived in an immersive digital world that eventually replaces the internet in the novel the metaverse has emerged after a worldwide economic collapse where governments have given up power to private companies and entrepreneurs leading to a huge divide between the haves and have-nots. Probably not a good name for your company given the terrible reputation for Facebook uh, anyway. So I don't know if Mark Zuckerberg knows something that I don't. Um, yeah. But not a good look. Not a good look, Mark. Not a good look. You got to say it like that. For the people on Twitter, on a good look. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, our next article. So inside, inside higher ed had two interesting articles. Uh, one of them was that faculty confidence in online learning grows. And the related article was half of all college students take online courses. So the latter is pretty self-explanatory. Just saying that in a given year or over the course of their career, over half of college students now are experience, are exposed to some sort of online education. So there's a greater degree of exposure. Not, And this is like, I believe that was pre-pandemic and I, I don't know what it is now. Uh, the, the faculty uh, confidence in online learning is interesting. So I, I'm going to quote from the article here. It says, a new survey finds that COVID-19 has not produced any such miracles. Fewer than half of professors surveyed in August uh, agree that online learning is an effective method of teaching, quote unquote, and that many instructors worry that the shift of virtual learning has impaired their engagement with students in a way that could exacerbate existing equity gaps. So that was what they said originally. But the report on the survey, Time for Class COVID-19 Edition Part 2, planning for a fall like no other, from every learner everywhere and uh, Titan Partners, that's the, the title of this thing, also suggests that instructors increased, if forced, experience with remote learning uh, last spring has enhanced their view of how they can use technology to improve their own teaching and to enable student learning. The proportion of instructors who see online learning as effective may still be just under half, 49%, but that's up from 39% who said so in a similar survey in May, it may suggest that most professors uh, feel much better prepared to teach with technology this fall than they were last spring. And they generally credit their institutions for helping them prepare. So interesting, there's still a lot of people who are skeptical. And I think there's pros and cons to online learning versus face-to-face -face, as you and I have discussed, but it's interesting yeah. to see just kind of the increase in comfort level. Yeah, and I guess you have another quote in here uh, from the article too. And, you know, by far the biggest complaint from students and faculty members alike about the remote learning that most experienced last spring was the lack of engagement and interactivity between students and instructors among uh, students themselves as well. Yeah, and I think that's fair, especially when we were working with um, tools that weren't really designed for engagement. I think Zoom is better, but like for instance, at our institution, we're a Google school, so we were using Google Meet. 
But you know, it's funny. It's it's amazing to me how drastically improved Google Meet has been since from where it was when I started to now. Because now, because it's a totally web-based client for video conferencing. So there's some huge advantages to that. And the way it does linking and integration into Docs and Google Calendar, there's some huge advantages over Zoom, though I still prefer Zoom. Yeah. Uh, but like the breakout rooms and just integration with Jamboard, like it just works. And it works yeah. really well. Like putting people in the breakout rooms. I haven't done it as much in Zoom. I have a suspicion that Google Meet has probably surpassed that. Yeah. I mean, it's um, it's funny because I think Zoom in a lot of ways, even though that, uh, you know, they've increased a, a huge amount of growth over this last uh, year, year and a half, they haven't really invested too much in terms of their functionality and up, you know, increasing some of the... Uh, Especially if I, if I was in their shoes, if I was at uh, Zoom, I mean, I would have probably uh, created some more features that would help uh, for educators, especially. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I don't know what they're doing. Maybe they're making so much money that they're, you know, they don't have to innovate as much as what's happening. But yeah, or uh, maybe they're just trying to keep up and make sure that the the system doesn't crash uh, with all this, ex, you know, extra load. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I, I find this whole thing, like uh, here, how we were chatting about this right before recording this, uh, but uh, uh, this year, this semester feels different. Uh, and I don't know how to explain it. And I don't know if it's, uh, uh, you know, a byproduct of just uh, with the pandemic for the last year and a half and so, but uh, whether it's online or in person, I'm finding the engagement, attendance, there's a number of issues and um uh, I've even had to go and adapt my teaching style, um, even in the online environment, because of all the um, uh, precautions that we're taking against COVID-19. I can't get people to move around as much, um, you know, just because of uh, social distancing. And Is that still in uh, force? Well, I mean, I, I don't know if I, it, whether it's enforced or not. I, I think it's just, you know, it's the the sort of uh, behavior or just maybe the comfort level. I don't know. It's just, uh, it's, it's not the same. It's not the same dynamic and I don't know uh, what's going to happen in the future, but we'll, we'll see, um, see how it goes. Yeah. It's interesting. Did you want to take us to our next item, which well, is not last... really a news item. I guess this is kind yeah. of our updates. Maybe we'll do an updates uh, section segment right now. Well, I mean, the, the update, I don't know if it's an update or not, but uh, I just What's thought it'd be, it might be kind of a nice thing for our listeners. So we have been invited by McGraw-Hill to actually do a, a session, an online uh, session as part of their teaching and learning webinar series. And we're going to be doing, Eric and I, uh, our talk will be on higher education trends that will outlast the pandemic and so that's going to take place on november 23rd uh, of this uh this month that's coming up uh, it's going to be from 1 30 to 2 30 eastern standard time and we'll put a link in the show notes for people to register it's for free if you can't get enough of eric and i <laughs> you'll get an extra bonus uh, you know actual session where you can see us maybe on video as well yeah i think it'll be fun I'm yeah. looking forward to that. Um, yes, please sign up. We'll put we'll put the link in the show notes, like you said. So November 23rd, uh, 1.30 to 2.30 Eastern Standard Time. 
our time, that's 1130 to, it starts at 1130 Mountain Standard Time. And then that would be 1030 Pacific Time, I think. Yeah. So uh, do you have any other uh, updates or things going on for our listeners? Any random technological musings, tips? Uh, not, not particularly, but I. it's funny because even though, uh, you know, normally I would have been like super excited to get like the latest iPhone and stuff. I mean, it's just like, blah, <laughs> you know, it's, it's nice, but uh, nobody's even really noticed it, which is kind of funny too. Except Are for you going to get a new computer? I'm thinking about it, uh, but I don't know. I was expecting... Like you, you know, you, you mentioned some of these things and they're expensive, like these new MacBook, uh, you know, pros that they've come out with. Um, I don't know if I want to spend like 2,300 or even 3000 bucks. If you go up to the, the 16 inch and it's quite a bit of an investment. And actually I was hoping that they would come out with a new Mac mini, um, with more ports and stuff, but, uh, that they announcement won't. hasn't come up, but it will, I mean, just gotta be patient, I suppose. Well, they already did, didn't they? Didn't they have a higher-end space gray Mac Mini that had like a higher-end Intel? They had done that at one point. They they did, but not with these new uh, M chips, right? Right. So I don't see why they would get rid of it. And they'll probably also come out with an iMac Pro or a a larger... I would suspect that they would come out with an iMac Pro and a larger iMac that's like an M1 base too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I know you don't need that because you already have all the monitors and stuff. Well, and that's the thing. So, I mean, I'm kind of debating. Sometimes it's just one of those uh, where you you just feel like you need to have it. And I, I don't know. It's uh, <laughs> But I'm also getting to the point where it's like, is it even worth it? And uh, I mean, look at like you showed this picture of yourself working on your iPad Pro with your keyboard and the mouse and everything. And, and you even mentioned uh, that maybe it might be better if you just had the bigger iPad Pro and then uh, just because the screen's kind of small. Yeah, well, I guess I can talk about that if, if you're interested. I mean, um, so before this podcast today, this is kind of outside of our rundown. I've been, so my setup, you and I have talked about our quote unquote command centers for some time, uh, our setups at home. What is the best home office setup, which is the most conducive for teaching? So you have a laptop on a stand. In fact, you have a very similar stand by Rain Design, aluminum stand. Um, I have, so I have a laptop, I have a 16 inch MacBook pro connected to that. You don't have to be a Mac user that's connected into, for me, I have a 28 inch 4k monitor with a Logitech webcam on top of it. Chris, you have a few monitors plus a PC and we have, you know, wireless keyboards and it allows us to not only be mobile and switch between things, but also, you know, just connect to multiple peripherals and we can have kind of a nice setup that does everything. But I didn't like taking a laptop to work, even a MacBook Air. Um, You know, a lot of the time I just don't, as an educator, you know, I'm teaching in a classroom. So there's a computer in the classroom with a projector. It's almost more work. It's easier for me to log in on a computer into my account, bring up my slides on Google Drive or to do something like that than it is to bring a laptop to connect everywhere that's not very conducive because we have all these rooms with equipment set up. So a laptop is way overkill for checking email. And it's also not very good for illustrations. So I've actually dumped a lot of my uh, PowerPoint slides over the past year. And what I've done, especially if I'm teaching online or even if I'm in the classroom, I'll hook up the iPad to HDMI on the projector. 
and I use a few apps. I use Notability, explain everything. And I use the Apple Pencil to draw out as like a digital whiteboard and illustrate concepts, um, problems that we're working through in the classroom rather than use chalk if the boards aren't big enough or use a combination of the board plus that. Uh, sometimes, and the nice thing is that if I'm doing it online, I can actually record it, the, the video conference. I can be logged in twice, logged in with my iPad, presenting and then talking through my other uh, login. And then I can record this stuff and it becomes very helpful to them. So I found that the, the iPad was a better mobile device. But recently I purchased, I've, I've had a Bluetooth keyboard for the iPad and a little case for a long time. So I've used keyboard to type and then I've used touch. But I actually, the iPad supports uh, uh, cursors really nicely. So I bought a Logitech Pebble mouse, um, which is a Bluetooth mouse, but it also has a USB connector too, if you want to use it for a computer. And it works well with the iPad. It's a great little device for scrolling around. I can scroll between windows. Uh, cursor support on the iPad is really good. And, and rather than have a case on my iPad locked into a keyboard case with a trackpad on it and make it like five inches thick, I don't need that all the time. I'm usually using it as a tablet, but occasionally I need to set it up as a desktop. So I didn't want to, I didn't want to turn it into a laptop. I wanted a tablet that could be desktopized for lack of a better word. So that's why I bring literally in my backpack, I have a little mouse that I keep in a little plastic bag so it doesn't get scratched. And I have a keyboard and a plastic bag and I keep them separate, turned off and the iPad and I just connect them as a little desktop and it works really well. Like I can switch between apps and I can do all this stuff. I have all my file system is in the cloud for what I need. I have Google drive. It's a little bit less flexible than using a real computer. I wouldn't say it's equivalent, um, but it's certainly not bad. Yeah, no, for sure. But I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you don't really use a laptop that's disconnected from your setup though, right? No, but I, you know what I have been doing is actually uh, because I don't want to go and bother with all the sanitization and everything like that. So I have been taking my laptop, my yeah. MacBook uh, to the classroom and uh, just hooking it up into the HDMI and everything. And uh, to be honest, uh, like one of the things, because um, uh, we're not allowed to go and add other fonts to the and you know the, that kind of thing onto our uh, uh, UFC or Mount Royal network computers so uh you know that gives me some flexibility in terms of design for my slides and so on so and then i i also have a logitech um, spotlight clicker that has some additional software that lets me go in if i want to i can go and zoom into something and there's some other kind of cool little features that way so which uh, again because of the network it limitations i can't go and do that but yeah yeah. So, I mean, really, that's the only reason why I'm thinking of maybe in the future upgrading. But again, it's it's kind of like a nice to have, but my computer is still working. But at some point, like, I mean, let's see which, um, like, I can't go for my particular laptop uh, for the OS. Um, you can upgrade to Monterey. Oh, no, you can't anymore. Can you? It's 2013. Yeah, I think that's my issue, right? So did you have Big uh, Sur? I'm on Catalina. You That's couldn't get Big thing. Sur either. I can't even get Big Sur. Yeah. So I'm. Yeah. I'm you know going. what I would do? I mean, this is just me. I, you could get a Mac Mini for your home and then just sync your um, files to iCloud Drive or whatever users in the local client, update the computer to update the files, and then just bring that as your mobile 
computer and have a desktop at home or like have a laptop for everything. I kind of like taking my laptop to the kitchen table in the morning if I'm working from home and it's sunny and there's lots of light. I don't have to be in. I like my basement office. It's really great for recording, but it's kind of drab to be in the basement all the time. So I do take my laptop around the house a lot. Yeah. So that's why, like, I, I really think in the future, like these, uh, uh, somebody's just going to have to go and do this where I, especially now with all this, uh, like the AI kind of like with Siri and, you know, you have even on the window side and stuff or on Google where you can actually talk to the vehicle or to the, to the, um, devices and stuff, but, uh, it's, there's going to be a shift. There's going to be like this voice kind of shift. I mean, uh, one of the things that I've been actually doing is, uh, using voice more so on the iPad. Yeah, me too. Actually go and type and stuff as opposed to going and using uh, the pencil, Apple Pencil, or even just uh, typing on there and stuff. Yeah, I agree 100%. And I've been doing that um, for a little while because I was telling you earlier about like a book idea I have and some research ideas. And I I tend to get those ideas when I'm walking, when I'm thinking. And for the longest time, I used to carry, I've always carried, you know, little field notes, notebooks, and I carry them around in my backpack. They're great. I love to write things on paper. Uh, it is better even than digital because I don't have to open an app and stuff like that. It works. Pens work quick, but um, it's cold in Alberta. So I'll go for a walk. I don't want to <laughs> futz with my gloves and I, I'm never going to get that. I'm going to have forgotten them. So I, I like that you can ask uh, Siri to create a new note and yeah. create a new note and do this and it just creates a note. I don't think it fills. I think it just creates the note headline, doesn't it? I think so. Uh, or yeah, something like that. You can let it talk for a while, listen, but it's limited, I think. And But I now, like I was doing that for this book idea. So now I have like all of these notes that could be chapters and I can take them and I can put them into Obsidian or I can take them into Scrivener and I can edit them. And But I do find that the voice is somewhat limited. Yeah. Well, and there's a, uh, another good app is uh, Otter. I've used that before, and it actually transcribes. What is that? It's is it just a transcribing. Yeah, it's a transcribing. It's free up to, I believe, it's 600 minutes. Anyways, uh, we could probably end off with that. Uh, maybe we'll include this link on, on uh, uh, in the show notes as well. I'm sure people will be interested. And uh, well, with that, I'll I'll see you next time. Yeah, for sure. Take care. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. You can learn more about EdTech Examined by going to our website, edtechexamined.com. There, you'll find ways to subscribe, as well as host information, our social media accounts, and our blog posts. Our blog posts are also published through Medium on the EdTech Examined publication. You can contact EdTech Examined by emailing us at hey at edtechexamined.com. If you have an EdTech question you'd like us to answer on a future episode, you can email us or reach us through Twitter using the hashtag EdTechOfficeHours. You can find EdTech Examined on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at EdTechExamined, and we also have a LinkedIn page you can follow. Until next time.